Hey, good morning. Take your Bibles and uh, New Testament, find the book of Colossians. It's a little book. It's after the Gospels, after the two letters to Corinthians. There's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We're going to be in the third chapter of Colossians this morning. I'd love for you to get a Bible open, have those verses in front of you, because we're going to go through just four or five verses today, um, kind of phrase by phrase. So it's going to be handy for you to have that in front of you. Um, we have been in a series at our church called Christian Worldview. This is our eighth week in this series, so this has been a long series for us. And we are looking at, first, the foundations of um, how does the Bible tell us how things work? Who's God? Who are we? What is sin? What does salvation look like? Kind of laying the foundation for a biblical worldview. And then in the last few weeks, we've been talking about where our view, a worldview, a biblical view, becomes in... Um, conflict or is different than how our culture currently or the lens that our culture kind of sees how life works or how the world is working. And so we've referred over the last couple of weeks, just as a quick review, our world has embraced something that some have called secular humanism. And the idea behind secular humanism is that we can find our own happiness, we can find our own fulfillment without ever considering God. He doesn't have to enter into our decision-making process. He doesn't have to enter into our choices or the path that we lead that we can find within ourselves as much happiness as there is to be found. Some have called this, instead of secular humanism, some have called it expressive individualism, which is the desire to be you. Just follow your heart, find yourself. In secular humanism um, and individual expressionism, whatever name you give it, they struggle, that, that worldview is going to struggle with anyone, anything, any authority that would say, no, there's a better path, there's a better way for you, any type of institution that would claim that it knows truth. So this is where it gets difficult for followers of Jesus Christ today. And I just want you to know that what we've been talking about here as we apply it to our culture, it's nothing new. I can go all the way back into the Old Testament, into the book of Judges, and you're going to see a couple of verses in the book of Judges. I'll put one of them on the screen. Judges 17, 6, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Doesn't that kind of sound like our world today? Everyone just wants to be able to do whatever they want, whatever is right in their own eyes. That is also kind of the spirit of the age or the lens in which our culture is approaching how to live life. But here's where it becomes a, a problem for the followers of Jesus Christ. We have a king. They say we have no king in Israel, so we did what was ever right in their own eyes. We're saying no, but we acknowledge a king, and that king's name is Jesus. So we live by different rules, and this creates different viewpoints and sometimes conflict and strife. And I want you to know, we, we didn't enter into this series to create some sort of intellectual exercise or philosophical debate. We're watching the choices and the logic behind the choices that our culture is making right now. And the question that we keep, want to keep in front of you, that we keep asking ourselves is simply this, where does all of this lead? If, if we're going to embrace secular humanism like our culture has embraced secular humanism, here's the question. Are we happier? Are we finding the fulfillment? Are we finding the things that we're looking for by embracing this worldview? Are we thriving in this age of individual expression? Is this leading to lasting joy? And I'm reminded that it says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end or its way leads to death. 
Our culture has basically said, if you want to be completely fulfilled, if you want to be completely happy, the best way to do that is to look inward. Man is basically good. Trust your instincts and look inward. Psalm 121 says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence does my help or my strength come. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth. So while the culture is looking inward to find their happiness, followers of Jesus Christ, we're always encouraged to look upward. This is where the conflict comes from. So we've looked at some of the places where these two worldviews are colliding. We looked at sexuality a couple weeks ago. Yesterday, we, or last week, we looked at money and possessions. Uh, today, we're going to talk about work. And um, that's not easy to do on a Sunday morning, right? Because the last thing you guys want to do is think about work. And if I start to talk about work, I'm going to lose half the room anyways because your minds are going to slide back to where you got to be tomorrow morning. But what I want to do is just spend a couple minutes in the text. This should be a very easy, practical message. I know some of you guys feel already beat up from football yesterday. And um, I just want to make it as practical and applicational as I can. So let's go ahead and look at the text. We're going to start in verse 22 of Colossians 3. I'll just read our text. It says this. It says, Bond servants, obey in everything... Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, for there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond slaves justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The big idea this morning is this, is make sure your identity drives your activity. Make sure your identity drives your activity. It's very easy to get that flipped and find yourselves where your activity is driving your identity. Now, now here's the challenge, even as we consider work and what's kind of going on in our current cultural context. I know that many in this room, as it relates to work, um, you're frustrated. We've come through a pandemic that's put different stress on different careers. Almost anywhere you look across almost any supply chain, we see fractures and broken down systems within the supply chains, which is making workers have to scramble in this current season in our economy. You also have a labor shortage. So between labor shortages, a pandemic, problems within the supply chain, many of you are working longer, harder in situations that are more demanding, more stressful. If you work in the service industry, I don't care if you're a, a waiter or a nurse or wherever you work in the service industry, can we just agree people are mean right now, right? They're just short-tempered. This is a difficult season for many of you as it relates to work. It's interesting, on October 14th, just a couple weeks ago, the New York Times published an article called The Revolt of the American Worker. And it said this, I quote, it says, long-suffering American workers who have been underpaid and overworked for years may have hit their breaking points. And then what he did, and he referred to a graph, I went and found the graph, but can you put this graph up here? This is an interesting graph. The best way I can explain it, it, it measures how often people are quitting their jobs. And so this is the last 20 years, and if you look, the gray areas are kind of recessions or problems within our economy. And when we have problems in our economy, people tend to hold on to their jobs because there's uncertainty. They're not sure what tomorrow holds, so all of a sudden, they don't tend to switch jobs so often. So if you go back to the left side of the graph in 2001, right after 
when our country was thrown into turmoil, all of a sudden you see a drop in the quit rate. And then it held kind of steady throughout the 2000s. We hit kind of the financial crisis of 2008, and you saw all of a sudden there weren't jobs and people weren't quitting, and everybody was nervous as we kind of went through that recession. But then the quit rate gradually jumped all the way back up to the start of 2019, that last sliver of gray basically is when the pandemic started in our country. And in the face of a pandemic with nobody knowing where this was going to go, all of a sudden nobody was quitting. Everybody was thankful that they had a job and they hung on to their jobs. But look what's happened after the break of the pandemic. Our quit rate has gone through the roof. Quite honestly, in our lifetime, there has never been a time where employers are qu- our employees are quitting their jobs at the pace that People are currently quitting their jobs. And the underlying thing behind that is people are frustrated. People are tired. People are aggravated. They're looking for something else. Frustration with work is at a cultural high. And I was, and I was thinking about this. And just, just so you know, I've got some experience on this subject. Before I was a pastor, um, I kind of worked like real jobs for like 30 years. And uh, I was kind of thinking my way through, like, so what are some of the jobs that I've worked? Well, my first job, I delivered newspapers as a kid. And then I was um, a landscaper, which means I cut grass. And uh, I was a caddy. I was an umpire. I hung drywall. I was actually the taper, the mutter, and the sander. So I was the guy in high school that would run around on stilts and tape the edges of drywall. I've been a janitor. I worked at a distillery. I ran the still making 200-proof alcohol. And, And... just a point of reference, give you a, a little window into my life. I said that last night, and that's all that I said. And then I went home, and my wife said, you really need to clarify that you weren't making alpha- alcohol for human consumption. It was for an additive for gasoline. And I was like, I don't think the people in the room were thinking that they were drinking 200-proof alcohol. But she just wanted me to clarify that, so I've done that. Um, you can take the girl out of the Baptist church. It's getting the Baptist out of Well, you know what I mean. Um, I've worked at an exotic animal farm taking care of elk and zebras, llamas and camels. I was a commodities trader at the Board of Trade, standing in a pit with a bunch of other people sending out signals and what used to be what they called open outcry. Believe it or not, I was a computer consultant. If any of you need an 80 meg hard drive installed in your Compact 286, I'm your guy, okay? You can just <laughs> give me a call, I'm on, I'm on top of that. I was an analyst, a stock trader, a real estate developer, I've been a baker, I've managed wealth. I've worked for Christians. I've worked for cokeheads. I've worked for family. I've worked for fools. I've worked for geniuses and not so geniuses. I know the pressure of not having enough money, and I know the weight of having too much. I know what it's like to be excited to go to work every day, and I know what it's like to dread leaving the house. Got a lot I want to say on this topic. But here's the good news, so does God's word. It's interesting, as you study the topic of work, as you open God's word to address this specific topic, it might surprise you that Paul, in all of his letters to the churches, he spends as much time talking about work as he does instructing us on marriage and parenting combined. But Paul understands that this is going to be something that is going to be difficult for Christians And so what I want to do is I just want to go through the text that we read. I'm going to kind of go through it phrase by phrase, quite honestly, word by word to beginning. The message is simple. There's going to be three marks of a bad employee. Hopefully you'll see these right in the text. And three marks of a good employee. Speaking of a bad employee, three marks of a bad employee, here's the first one. You won't do what you're told. You won't do what you're told. So the 
Ephesians 3.20, or Colossians 3.22, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. We're going to do this a word at a time. See that first word, slaves? Most difficult word in the whole message. Because when you see that word slaves, you should be asking two questions. Here's one, we're not slaves. So the instruction that he's giving here to slaves, how does that translate to our current work environment? That's a good question. And then here's another question. If God is good and slavery is evil, why in the world does God not more directly speak against slavery in God's word? Those are two questions that should come to your mind when you see those words, slaves. Let me answer the second one first. Why doesn't God more? Why doesn't the Bible explicitly condemn slavery? Here's what I would tell you. The failure to condemn slavery or the failure of the Bible to directly condemn slavery has made some people justify slavery, even in our country's history. And secondly, the, the Bible's failure to um, speak out against slavery. Others have said, if that's what the Bible is, if your God doesn't address that issue, if he doesn't speak out against it, then I don't want to believe in that kind of God. A couple things you need to understand. During the first century, ancient historians, when Paul was writing, when Jesus was ministering, in the Roman Empire, it was estimated that there were as many as 60 million slaves. Nearly half the population would have been considered slaves. Ancient slavery, it wasn't based off race. Slaves were educated. They served as doctors. They served as teachers. And they were not the lower, most low rung in the social strata. The lowest rung belonged to daily laborers who had to hustle and scramble every day for work. Many would choose to become slaves to escape the lowest strata because at least as a slave, they had guaranteed employment, they had guaranteed housing, they could be educated. And slaves had the ability through hard work to basically earn their freedom. Slaves had the ability to own property. Some slaves even owned other slaves. But, but here's what I would tell you. Nonetheless, you can't sugarcoat slavery in the first century. It wasn't great. They didn't have rights. They were, continue, they were considered property. But, but here's what I want you to understand that most people won't tell you when they're criticizing the Bible and what it says about slavery. The Bible speaks explicitly against slavery, particularly the slavery that has been in the history of our country, be that slavery back in the 17, 16, 17, and 1800s, be it sexual slavery that even exists today. Listen to what the Bible says in the Old Testament. In Exodus 21, 16, it says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. This idea of forcing somebody into slavery, be you the one that forces them or be you the one that employs the man who was forced, in both cases, the penalty was death. Deuteronomy 24, 7 says, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. You shall purge that evil from your midst. The Bible doesn't not speak to these issues. In 1 Timothy 1.10, in a list of different sins, fornicators, adulterers, one of the sins listed there is enslavers. Paul addressed it to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.10. The Bible clearly prohibits slavery in the way we most commonly think of slavery. The second thing to understand is slavery, that first century version of slavery, was the economic system of the day. And Jesus, when he came to minister, when he began his ministry, he proclaimed the gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His singular mission was to give the good news 
of the gospel. He didn't speak against an unfair taxation system. He didn't speak against the oppression of Rome. Many wanted him to. They wanted him to be a social reformer. His ministry and his focus was singular. I'm going to preach the gospel. Paul did the same thing. Don't take their silence on slavery as condoning slavery. They were looking at the current system and they were telling believers, we have to prepare you to deal with what is. And we're going to stay centered on the good news of the gospel. To not address slaves and masters would have left the church unequipped to deal with the reality of their lives. And to address masters and slaves is not condoning the system. It was dealing with what is. And then we've got this other issue. That's kind of the second question. Why doesn't the Bible speak against it? Well, it does. But the primary point of the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And then the second one, how does this relate to us? Because today we're employees, we're not slaves. So the issue of we're not slaves... Yes, you are. You're slaves. There is no system according to God's word. There is no system where slavery is not a universal principle. There is no escape from enslavement, no existence where absolute independence is ever obtained. Romans 6 tells us this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul's saying, you have a master. It's either Jesus Christ or it's sin. You're slaved, you're enslaved to something. Paul, when he addresses himself in all of his letters, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. It's his most common greeting as he addresses the church. Everyone's serving something. The the question this morning is, what are you serving? So so just to help with this, just so we're nailing this down and cementing it, please do me a favor. Just kind of turn to your neighbor and look at them. I don't care if you know them or not. Just look at them and say, you're a slave. Okay, now turn the other way. Tell your other neighbor, you're a slave, okay? Okay, I just want to make sure this is crystal clear. By the way, if you're sitting next to your wife or your kids and you're turned and said, hey, you're a slave, and they were like quick to say, I know, that's a whole different issue, okay? (laughs) We can talk about that some other time. It's interesting, even last week as we talked on the subject of money, I read this verse from Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve two masters, for either he will hate the one, or it says no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Paul's making an argument throughout his letters, and particularly in the book of Colossians, there's only one master that's worthy of our service. His name is Jesus. He's the only good master. Okay, so we're one word through the text. How am I doing time-wise? Okay, we're going to pick up the pace, all right? Second word, obey. Okay, guess what obey means? To submit to authority, to complete a command. Next two words, in everything, those who are your earthly masters. Guess what? I did some work on in everything. If you look at the Greek, everything means everything. (laughs) Obey in everything. And I know what you're thinking. You're already looking for the out clauses. Well, what if my boss asks me to do this, something that's unethical, something that violates my conscience? Well, let, let, let's address that. Let's think about that for a minute. First of all, let's be clear. Um, asking you to stay an hour late at work is not a violation of your conscience. Okay? Too often, we have an incredible ability to make the things that we don't want to do violations of our conscience. 
And Paul is starting by saying, hey, here's some traits of a bad employee. They won't do what they're told. And what I would suggest to you as a follower of Jesus Christ in relation to this command in everything, obey your boss. Here's what I would tell you. In everything, obey your boss. Do everything you can to do what he's asked you to do and to do it well. And if you find yourself in that rare circumstance where he's asking you to do something unethical or that violates your conscience, let that be the exception, not a continuation of the norm. We need to be people that are willing to be submissive to the authority that's placed above us. It's interesting, I grew up Again, I really don't care about Michigan, Michigan State yesterday. While you guys were watching that, I was watching Manchester United versus Tottenham, way better game. I grew up a soccer player. And um, one of the things that I learned playing high school soccer in the United States, and when I went to college, I've had a bunch of foreigners on my team, very, very good soccer players, missionary kids, foreigners, kids that had grown up in other countries, and they take their soccer really, really serious, and they're way better than us. So I was playing with all these foreign kids, but the one thing that really bothered me in playing with all of these other kids is if they got nicked on the field, like if they just barely got touched by another player, they'd lay down, they'd writhe on the field, they'd act like somebody had just shot them, like they had a broken leg, they'd bring out the stretcher, they'd carry them to the side, five minutes later they'd be running a lot round again. I'm like, for real? Like, this is... It's ridiculous. Like, like, they are some of the wimpiest athletes in the entire world, these soccer players that are always feigning injury. See, the problem is when you cry wolf, you never know when somebody's hurt <laughs> or when they're just faking or when they're really hurt. And I would just say, as it relates to obeying your bosses in everything, make sure that you're obeying them in all of the small things. So if you have to make a moral objection... They're saying, well, something must be different. Here's another thing. First one is you won't do what you're told. Here's the second. You need constant supervision. Hopefully you see this in the text. The next thing it says is not by way of eye service. Proverbs 6, verse 6 through 8 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. I just find it interesting that as humans, we're told to go look at ants, figure out some wisdom. And the thing that he points out about ants is this. It says, without having any chief officer or ruler, the ants, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Managing somebody who needs constant supervision is absolutely exhausting. So a couple weekends ago, I'm over at Harbor Island. I'm watching um, my grandkids play soccer in the morning. Um, the, the current game that I'm watching is of... Um, my grandson, Caleb, he's playing soccer. He's four. It's riveting stuff. And so I'm watching that game. The 18, his 18-month-old little sister, Maddie, is there. She's watching all the little kids run around. She can't figure out why she has to sit on mom's lap, and she can't run around. So I give Morgan a break, her mom, and I'm like, I'll go take Maddie for a walk. So I'm taking the 18-month-old for a walk. Um, that girl can move. And she takes off, and she finds a mud puddle, and she starts to jump in the mud puddle. And I just don't have the attention span anymore. I've got a lot of grandkids. These kids start to get away from me. So all of a sudden she runs towards a bigger puddle and then I see her start to stumble and she starts to trip over her feet and she's going face first into mud puddle. And I grab the back of her coat, pull her out like this. She made a splash. She was kind of dirty, but at least she didn't facial it. You know what I mean? So I take her back to her mom. I'm feeling pretty good that I rescued her. And her mom's like, seriously, two minutes and this is what she looks like? Because she was, she was pretty muddy, I'll, I'll admit. Don't be that person. 
If the boss isn't looking, do you work hard? It's interesting. Thinking back through all of my jobs, the first big break that I got in my business career was actually after my senior year of high school, believe it or not. Um, I was dating a girl, Kristen, who's now my wife, and um, I was working a summer job, and about two weeks before I had to go to college after my senior year, my job ended abruptly. Um, I got fired. That's a story for another day, but I had this two-week gap, and... um, Why would you say about that job that I got fired from? I think if you're driving a tractor and behind the tractor you've got five spinning mower blades, if a cat runs out, that shouldn't be on you. Like, I just don't think that's something that you should get fired for. Um, Now, I I got to own some of it. I panicked. I wasn't thinking it through. I took what the cat now, two cats, and I left it on the porch. Um, Because I didn't want the woman to wonder if her cat had run away. And um, so that part was on me, but that's neither here nor there. So anyways, I got this two-week gap before I got to go to college. I don't have any work. And my father-in-law looks at me and goes, hey, if you're looking for something to do, I'll employ you for two weeks. Why don't you go wax my plane? I didn't want to wax a plane, but I had an ulterior motive because I was dating his daughter. So what what are you going to do, right? So I'm like, sure, I'll go do this. And so, by the way, waxing a plane back in the 1980s, you guys heard of turtle wax? Wax on, wax off, let it dry, do a haze, then buff it out. That's what I was doing for two weeks. And I'm working at this hangar, and I've got my boom box, and I'm just working by myself, buffing the underside of wings. And by the way, this was a corporate jet, 16 passenger. And I had to finish it in two weeks. And what I didn't know at the time, just being a dumb high school kid, is that my father-in-law knew the guy who owned the hangar. His name was Bob Muckenschnabel. <laughs> I'm not making, I don't even know what nationality is. German-Mongolian, Bob Muckenschnabel, that's who he is. I hope he's not listening, okay? So, so Bob is working there, and my father-in-law is calling him saying, is the kid working hard? He's like, yeah, the kid doesn't take breaks. He takes like a 15-minute lunch. He's, just, he's killing himself on this thing. And I didn't know it, but six, seven years later, I go to work for my father-in-law, and um, that, that stuck in his mind. Do you need constant supervision? Here's a third thing from the text. Do you work to get noticed? See those words as people-pleasers? Some here really struggle with being people-pleasers. Are you working for the praise of men? How your boss perceives you is not the ultimate goal. His, your, how your co-workers perceive you is not the ultimate goal. Are you working as a people pleaser? Or are you trying to please the Lord? It's interesting, even in my career, so um, my mid-20s, I finally went to work for my father-in-law in 1989. I worked for him for 10 years. And over that 10-year course of time, I worked very, very hard to gain his approval I wanted him to believe I was a hard worker. I wanted him to think I was intelligent. I wanted to be successful. And I worked as a people pleaser. Didn't even know it. Still a Christian, still going to church. And in 1999, after working for him for 10 years, he died. And and now I was left to run the companies that he left behind. But that was a season in my life. Kristen and I, Kristen would give testimony to this too. I just found myself lost. Because though I thought I was doing thing, everything right as a follower of Jesus Christ, I was working hard. The reality was I wasn't working to serve my heavenly master. I was working to gain my father-in-law's approval. And those are two very, very different things. So three traits of a bad employee. You won't do what you're told. You 
require constant supervision and then you work to get noticed. Let me give you three marks from the text of a good employee. Here's the first one. Selflessness. Selflessness. With sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That idea of sincerity of heart, it has the idea of singleness of purpose. It has the idea of generosity. It's without seeking self. Forbes interviewed an author by the name of Eric Chester. He wrote a book called Reviving Work Ethic. And in that book, let me just tell you what he quoted or what he said in this interview. He said this, employers are searching for positive, enthusiastic people who show up to work on time, who are dressed and prepared properly, who go out of their way to add value and do more than what's required of them, who are honest, who will play by the rules, and who will give cheerful, friendly service regardless of the situation. Now, I read that quote. It was interesting to me and something you need to know about the interview that was done pre-pandemic. So as I think about our context today and the employers in the room who are looking for employees, there's a list of about eight things up there. The first thing that I would ask you is that list describe you. Is that your approach to your job? Sadly, with today's labor crisis, like as employers, we're looking for like two of the eight. Do they show up? Are they dressed? You're hired. Like, like it's, it's gotten lean out there. There's no doubt. But does that describe you? Are you selfish in your approach to work? Here's some good practical advice, some of the best advice I was ever given early in my career. At my first job coming out of college, my father-in-law pulled me aside. He goes, here's what you need to do. He goes, um, do what your boss doesn't want to do. Figure out what he doesn't want to do and do it well. That served me well. It's a selfless approach in how you approach what you're asked to do. Why would I do this? Like, 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 why would I make these type of sacrifices? Here's the word, fear. You do it out of fear. But please see in the text, it's not fear of your boss. It's fear of the Lord. Paul will tell his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, he'll say, let all who are under a yoke his slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. It's worthy of all honor. Sadly, when most of us in today's culture, it's very, very acceptable to uh, refer to your boss or to refer to your employer. And when you talk about them, listen to it at the coffee shops, listen to it in the lunchrooms. There's a lot of grumbling. There's a lot of complaining about their bosses. And can I remind you, this is sin. I'm going to be direct as I can on this subject. Quit critiquing your bosses. Quit critiquing your bosses. It's not your job to hold them accountable. Their bosses will hold them accountable. And you're like, I'm not so sure that's going to happen. Well, let me help you. We're going to get there in the text. They have a boss. That's the Lord. And he knows how to balance scales. Quit critiquing your bosses. There's been a cultural shift over the last 20 years as it relates to employees' attitudes towards their bosses that is quite shocking. 20 years ago, researchers who study this will say that the typical employee, when they went to work, here's what they were thinking about as it related to their boss or their employer. Am I doing a good job? Is he happy with my performance? Does he like me? How does he perceive me? Today, does my boss make me happy? What do I think about the job he's doing and overseeing me? And quite honestly, this is in every area of our culture. Kids critiquing how their parents are doing parenting. I deal with this all of the time. 
One of our elders, Tim Penning, he sent an article around to some of the elders and some of our pastors who work with um, young adults. And he said, it's interesting. This is an article that says young adults are becoming disconnected with what their, with their churches. Do you know why? They quoted kid after kid. And here's what they said. The young adults were saying, I keep going to church and they're telling me stuff that I really don't feel in my heart. And the church has to do a better job of aligning their teaching to what I feel. Listen, God's word stands in judgment of us. It's never the other way around. And, and, and this is secular humanism leaking into, be it the church, be it into our homes, and be it into our workplaces. I read an article this week. It was in a, on a website called Millennial Marketing was saying, how do you market jobs to millennials? And it was interesting. They said, here's the millennial employee mantra. We work with you, not for you. We work with you, not for you. That sounds really good. But please don't miss the subtle communication behind that. You could just as well say the employee mantra is, you're not my boss. Welcome to the cultural battle. Three marks of a good employee, selflessness. Here's the second one, work hard. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Work hard at your jobs. Work hard. And then when you get home from your jobs, work hard on your marriage. And if you have families, work hard with your kids. Work hard at parenting. Work hard at developing character. Same interview I referred to earlier, Forbes magazine to Eric Chester. He was asked this question, is it possible to work hard if you hate your job? I liked his answer. Listen to this. He said, you won't produce heat in the fireplace by saying, once there's a fire, I'll put in some logs. You put, in lo you put the logs in and build a fire, and then you'll see some heat. Likewise, the passion you have for a job is directly related to the initiative you put into it. Then listen to what he says. This is, this is insightful. He says, passion doesn't fuel work ethic. Work ethic fuels passion. Most people want to, don't, uh, want to go about it backwards. They want to let their passions propel their efforts. They want an emotion-driven life. But our emotions don't always lead us to where we need to go and keep us where we need to be. There it is, the tension between the biblical worldview and the cultural worldview. And I don't even think he knew he was speaking biblical truth. But if you go back to Genesis 4, all the way to the story of Cain and Abel, you've got this counsel. If you're depressed, if you're angry, do well and let your emotions follow. But we, lead in a, or we live in a culture that says, follow your emotions, follow your hearts. It's the battle. Warren Buffett was asked by a student. Warren Buffett, he runs a company by the name of Berkshire Hathaway, one of the most successful investment firms. Warren's 91, one of the richest men on the planet. Here was the question that he was asked. It said, what would you do to live a happier life if you could live over again? Here's what Buffett responded. To be happy, you should work with people you like and do something you enjoy. I think that's good advice. I, I, I tend to agree with it. And I think if you want a happy marriage, marry somebody that will never annoy you. If you want a happy family, raise perfect kids. Oh, that's good. <laughs> if you want to enjoy fishing, catch more fish. Okay? The point is this. That sounds good, but the reality is there's going to be days where your boss 
isn't great. He's not fair. Your coworkers are annoying. And if we're looking for all of our fulfillment and all of our satisfaction and all of our identity in the workplace, you're going to be disappointed. Your search for the perfect work culture and the perfect boss is a delusion like looking for Prince Charming or Miss Wonderful. You're hunting a unicorn. Our culture is broken because of sin in all different aspects, be it sexuality, be it our possessions, be it work. And our goal should be simple. I'll do what I'm asked to do to the best of my ability to the glory of God. Some of you are like, man, you don't know my work. You don't know my boss. Great. That's the third point. Selflessness, work hard, know who's boss. Throughout this text, please see, fearing the Lord, as for the Lord, from the Lord. And then if I go even into verse, or you are serving the Lord Christ. And then chapter 4, verse 1, masters, treat your bond slaves fairly and ju- or justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Some of you are like, why do you keep focusing on employees? Man, you got to talk more about bad bosses. The reason I've done that is because none of us are the boss at the end of the day. All of us serve a different boss. It's interesting, if I were to take you back to Genesis 1, the first thing that is revealed about our creator God, almighty God, the first thing that we're taught about God is that he works. He worked. He worked six days, then he rested. The first thing we see before we see any glimpse of God's justice, of his mercy, of his grace, or of his love, God is working. And then we find out that we're created in his image. God created creative people to create. We're told in Genesis 2, verse 15, that the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And it's interesting, this week we were preparing this sermon like we do about 10 days in advance with a bunch of different pastors in the room. And Chris Moeller said, that's an interesting verse, to work and to keep it. Those two words in the Hebrew Bible, they show up in other passages and other places. This is the only place that they're translated work and keep. Every other place in the Hebrew Bible, worship and obey. Interesting. We're called to work and to keep as an expression or an outpouring of our worship and obeying of the Lord. One of the ways that we worship and obey God is through our work. Whatever you do, work heartily. Verse 23, as for the Lord and not for people. And here's the last thing that I want to say as we close. Don't let your job define you. If you're keeping notes, let the gospel, not your work, define you. Here's what I would say, just very, very simply. Your job, without seeing it through the lens of the gospel, will sink you. Too often we let our activity become our identity, and when that happens, here's the risk. When you go through seasons where you're doing good at work, you're getting uh, accommodations, your boss is pleased with the work that you're doing, all of a sudden pride enters in. And then what happens is when you're struggling at work and all of a sudden the bottom line isn't making it or you get fired or whatever, all of a sudden there's failure and all of a sudden you're crushed beyond what you should be crushed because you've put a greater identity on your work than it was made to bear. The gospel is the only thing I can point you to that roots your identity outside your own performance. The thing I love about the gospel is you are loved by by God through the work of Jesus Christ because of what he accomplished, not because of what you did. And if you put your identity, if you put your happiness, if you put your fulfillment on your career, it won't be able to sustain the weight of those expectations. Only the gospel can do that because Jesus did it in our place. 
please hear me. In this series, I'm not trying to debate what's going on in culture. I'm fighting for your joy. And too often, we're going to place our identity, our expectations, and our happiness on worldly things. We're going to place those expectations on our sex lives. And we're ultimately going to screw it up because it's going to disappoint because it was never made to bear the weight of those things. We're going to put that weight on our possessions and money is going to disappoint. You're going to put that weight on your spouse. You're the one that's to make me happy. You're the one that's to complete me. My identity is in you. And you will crush your spouse. They were never designed to bear that weight. And parents, if you put it on your kids, and you're going to crush them. Our identity, our security, our hope, and our happiness is meant to be placed on our relationship with God. And our culture will tell you the the exact opposite. No, place it on these other things. And I'm just going to say, how's that going? When we take our identity, when we take our joy and we say, listen, the thing we're going to pursue is our primary pursuit. The thing that's going to fulfill these things where we find ourselves empty, we're putting that into our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I promise you, he will not disappoint. This isn't a fight to win a battle on worldviews. This is a fight for your joy and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, straightforward talk on a thing that most of us have to deal with at least five days a week. Father, in work, in our homes, with our passions, with our desires, with our possessions, Father, teach us to make you central. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.